So we won't step in and be venture capitalists. We will just encounter enterprises that have been overfunded sometimes by venture capitalists that have real value where we can advance very conservatively against that value and make outsized returns. Welcome to the latest installment of Currently, the podcast that brings you the week's current events in finance, business, and technology with insight from the experts. Today, Ryan Pallotta is talking with Dan Zwerin, CEO and CIO at Arena Investors LP. The chat begins with a look at the current maelstrom of macroeconomic events through a historical lens. Dan compares the tumult of 2022 with that of the late 1960s, remarking that we've never seen the sort of environment we see today without it leading to a full-blown panic. He then explains how the reaction to Liz Truss's plan for shoring up the British economy caused a wholesale re-evaluation of the country's credit worthiness. Dan goes on to detail the four main ways in which Arena insulates its investors from macroeconomic trends and offers everyday investors advice on how to navigate what could be a long and deep recession. Our podcast with Dan Zwerin reminds us that having direct access to financial experts can be the difference between surviving and thriving in times of economic volatility. At Prometheus, you can learn directly from top professionals like Dan and access the funds they manage more easily than ever before. Go to our website, prometheusalts.com, and get started today. And now, enjoy our chat with Dan Zwerin. Dan, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, you know, I really wanted to get into first talking about you know some of the macro trends that we're seeing. I know you're a huge history buff, and I wanted to see if have you ever seen anything like this? The current things that we're seeing in the markets today in history, like as to where we're seeing so many things going on at once with the war in Ukraine, interest rates rising, just coming out of a pandemic, what may happen in Taiwan with China. Using your you know passion for history, do you think that how do, you, how do you navigate this? And have you seen anything like this happen in the past? Well, there's nothing new under the sun. Uh, and so by definition, we very likely have seen uh, circumstances similar to those we have today. And we certainly have. Um, I would say most recently, I would liken it to what we saw in the late 60s, uh, where basically you had Western democracies wildly overcommitted internationally while simultaneously um, spending more than they, than they were able to spend domestically. The mm-hmm. desire to do that created kind of a fiscal indiscipline, uh, which in combination with choppy decision-making from the relevant monetary authorities um, also created a bit of an asset bubble. Today, we are definitely facing what could be described as a, certainly on an absolute basis, a historically enormous asset bubble that was initially caused by the a decision to engage in QE2 by the monetary authorities in 2012, which wasn't necessary. It wasn't really a a thoughtful judgment. Why don't you think qualitative easing at the time wasn't, just for our listeners who don't know, what, what, first off, what caused them to want to do that? And why don't you think it was necessary to do that? Sure. So quantitative easing basically is a process by which the uh, monetary authorities are buyers of fixed income, which is another way to effectively lower borrowing rates, right? In order to encourage investment. Typically, Monetary authorities up to that point, up to the point of QE1, had basically lowered interest rates in, in particularly you know, difficult times in order to encourage investment, you know, build capital, uh, encourage the economy to grow, et cetera, et cetera. At the extremes of the 08 crisis, this notion of 
uh, of quantitative easing was adopted to effectively be another way to make interest rates low and potentially and effectively lower than zero. So you had negative real interest rates, right? So that's, you want to use that in an emergency. Uh, You don't want to get used to it, right? Uh, And so it was likely reasonable to employ in 08. It was helpful in terms of the the growth of the economy in the wake of the crisis. Mm -hmm. But, you know, when markets were down a bit, uh, that wasn't the answer, right? Taking opioids when you have a cold is not the right answer. Who coined that term and like, was it, who, who put that into place at the time in 2012? Uh, ben Bernanke. Uh, and it was exacerbated by Janet Yellen and continued to be exacerbated by Jerome Powell. And, you know, similar programs in other uh, large scale economies. That created a tremendous, tremendous asset bubble because borrowing was cheap, right? So therefore, you should buy everything you can and you should borrow as much as you can, as cheaply as you can. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, this systematic mispricing of risk created an enormous, enormous debt, effectively, that the economy ultimately would have to pay as the amount of capital put against these assets rationalized to a level commensurate with their long-term intrinsic value. Now, in economies like Japan, where you had at least reasonable fiscal policy, People counted on the notion that you could have relatively profligate monetary policy over long stretches of time, right? In which case you effectively don't really ever face the music. You just create a more listless kind of malaise where innovation is cramped, um, but no one is hurt too badly, right? And you can kind of, you can get away with that for a while. The issue is when you then compound that uh, or light the fuse, of the uh, pricking of the bubble, to mix metaphors, uh, by grossly profligate fiscal policy, you create inflation, right, that starts to run away. And by virtue of already having materially negative real interest rates, you're left with no other ability to deal with those, uh, with that runaway inflation, other than to very drastically increase rates, right? Uh, Is this something that people were seeing starting to happen even before the pandemic? Or were we seeing issues with interest rates maybe like start to hint before the pandemic happened? Well, there was clearly an asset bubble, but before the pandemic, we didn't have as nearly a degree of profligate fiscal policy. And so there was certainly much more of a notion that we could kind of just keep dancing like in Japan. Right, and spread the bad monetary policy over the decades. However, after the kind of third injection of, of free money in COVID and the subsequent additional government moves that were severely damaging to the intrinsic value of the fiat currency, mm-hmm. you basically uh, started the inflation, uh, started inflation. And when you have inflation in that manner, it inevitably starts to grow and the rate of growth increases until you become more responsible on a, on a fiscal basis and or you very materially raise rates. And unfortunately, the issues we now, in which we now find ourselves were compounded by the fact that the monetary authorities were incredibly late to accept the reality of what they needed to do in order to staunch inflation. And so, as you may recall, they pointed to things like uh, supply chain issues and, yeah, there was... There was an always, always another dog eating the homework, right? 
<laughs> until finally yeah. they said, wow, we really missed it. We've now really materially reduced our credibility. And so we now need to play catch up, right? Mm -hmm. And so they finally kind of came to the party much, much later than they should have. And they're trying to regain some level of credibility and move at real interest rates to a positive level so that appropriate pricing of risk starts to happen so that we can kind of move this asset bubble down and have a much a, an economy that's more under control. Now, their efforts are in turn continue to be undermined by government mm -hmm. moves that further ignite Make inflation, right? Yeah. And so yeah, they're, like Carbon Reduction they're, Act or Inflation Reduction Act. Right. Inflation Reduction Acts that actually increase inflation are <laughs> probable, right? And so yeah. you now have the, the government and the monetary authorities acting against each other and against each other's purposes, right? You can add all that up and it, to the fact that we ultimately have to pay the piper, that risk has to be appropriately priced, that real interest rates have to be positive in order to create an appropriate alignment of interest and create real risk associated with the acquisition and, or development of assets. That's just how it has mm -hmm. to be. And so you've never had inflation at this level that has ever ended uh, in anything other than a, either stagflation slash recession or mm -hmm. continued escalating inflation. And in addition, very infrequently have you had the environment that we have today and not experienced a full-blown panic, right? Whereby effectively mm -hmm. liquidity gets locked up. So we haven't seen any of that yet. But things are getting, unfortunately, kind of worse and worse and worse across geographies and, and product areas. Well, speaking on history, do you think there was anything to learn that we could take from what happened maybe in the 70s with Volcker raising interest rates? I think you raised them substantially more than we're raising them mm -hmm. today. Uh, yes. Is there anything that you as an investor, like, or if you were running the Fed, would take as learnings from that as a history student? Well, there's, there were positive and negative learnings uh, from the 70s. So as an example, in the Nixon administration, they imposed wage price controls, right? That, as, as every other example of that has, show that you cannot top-down manipulate certain subsets of assets in order to staunch inflation. So releasing you know, uh, oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve in order to manipulate yeah. gas prices doesn't, does not intrinsically materially affect inflation, right, as an example. We can't just say stop raising prices to everybody. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Number two, uh, if you saw what Arthur Burns did in the mid 70s, uh, selectively taking items out of the consumer price index does not change intrinsic inflation, right? Manipulating mm -hmm. the index does not change the underlying intrinsic facts of the matter, right? And so, mm -hmm. again, keep playing around with definitions, but it doesn't stop reality from happening. And then third, when finally you have the uh, political will uh, in order to do the right thing and you do raise interest rates in order to finally staunch what at that point was, you know, 12 years of runaway inflation, you have to do it and do it with credibility, right? Which is not broadcasting that you're going to make you know, relatively small increments, you're going to say, I'm going to do the right thing here. I'm going to do it suddenly and aggressively with, and, and gain credibility. So when I tell you that we're going to get inflation dealt with, you're going to believe me, right? And so this kind of day late and a dollar short um, strategy we have, even at the 75 bit clip that we've been going at, where we go meeting by meeting, is really still quite tame relative to what Paul Volcker was in a position to do. 
Now, as we've seen in the UK, when you say, hey, I'm going to do the right thing here, I'm going to force rates up, I'm going to force the government to spend less, I'm going to try to make the government do the right thing, um, society, a given society has to be ready to take that, right? So after a decade and a half of battering, people in the UK were ready to take that message from Margaret Thatcher. Um, they clearly are not ready to take that message yet, right? Um, but that message will have to get through ultimately. It's kind of an easy way, hard way thing. Is that why you're, we're seeing their currency get demolished, especially like what, what's that really causing that compared to the US dollar? Well, I think uh, you're, you're getting into, and again, I don't have, I wouldn't say that I have an investable macro view, right? We want to mitigate macro from all that we do as investors. Uh, but I would say that uh, frequently the U.S. on a relative basis becomes a world reserve currency. The U.S. has committed on a relative basis to very aggressive rate hikes, right? So it's paying people, you know, to support its 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 credit effectively relative to other markets. And I think the way that the trust message was delivered and packaged destabilized the level of credibility. Mm-hmm. It made people take another look at UK credit and ta- and realize, hey, wait a second, this is kind of a an eighth or ninth inning empire here, right? It's been on a long slide from, you know, post-World War One. Longer term prospects, maybe not great. Maybe it, it caused a wholesale reevaluation of the fundamental economics of the UK economy and mm-hmm. the degree to which its participants are willing to do the right thing economically to create innovation, to uh, reduce entitlements and to do the right thing in order to grow, you know, the grow with, within the resources that they had, that they have now, you know, without a colonial empire. As a manager yourself and as uh, with Arena, is there a way you can in, use the current market conditions to invest or, uh, or how can you mitigate risk through this, these times? What is your, how are you currently setting up your strategy at Arena to, you know, handle these volatile times? Is there a way to even profit off of it? Quite certainly. Uh, with volatility, there becomes opportunity. And by virtue of the flexibility we have as a strategy, we have not been forced to uh, expose ourselves to a number of the things that are going to really take pain over the next several years. And so that leaves us certainly at the beginning with a fresh, a, a fresh mind and a, and a set of good investments that we are very happy with today in order to kind of move forward and, and be uh, proactively opportunistic. Second, a number of the things that we do are very compelling and completely disconnected from the kind of overall economic environment. So as an example, that might be in private convertibles where that have various convertibility features and other features that put us in a position such that we make a profit, whether the stock is up, down or sideways. We really don't have to care. It could also mean in investing in things that um, are kind of intrinsically disconnected from the overall economy. So as an example, parts of litigation finance, right, or various forms of pharmaceutical or musical royalties or insurance related investments. Again, completely disconnected from is a company or a property performing well or not. And then finally, um, in situations where we are taking what is at least a nominally directional view, we're going to require tremendous uh, margin of safety. Um, We're going to look at being as senior as we can. Uh, in the capital structure, 
with as much asset coverage or, or, or enterprise coverage as we can, with as little relative duration as we can, with as much compensation as we can access, as well as with as much control as we can uh, bargain for. And so in this kind of market, um, we are seeing a very great increase in the number of counterparties that you know, feel a great motivation to transact. And so as a result, it puts us in a position to be incredibly selective in terms of the, the choices that we make and the structures that we require in order to take at least nominally directional investment bets. And then finally, we're in a position where we can, where we also take a part of our gains every year and we invest in various forms of what you could broadly refer to as put options, right? Where we're mm -hmm. saying, let's take a little bit of our, of our gains and invest in insurance, right? Mm -hmm. So that, for instance, as an example, we insured ourselves against um, the expectation that rates would actually move much higher than people thought, right? And so that was a good, a good thing to do. Right. And so you don't make a lot of money doing that. And you're perfectly comfortable with all that insurance, all those insurance premiums go away. But in a month where the S&P goes down 20, those things are going to be, you know, very asymmetrically positive, for, you know, to your benefit and, and mitigate any exposure you might have to the overall world. Growth has been such a big investment theme, especially we've seen uh, lately. And where do you see the opportunity in credit markets, given the infusion of VC capital over you know, the past decades? Well, there's a there's a really um, exceptional opportunity um, that we're pursuing uh, with Gusto right now in that whole world, right? So, the world of growth doesn't mean that one can only invest in venture capital. There are companies that have real franchises that have the capacity, if not the uh, active process by which they can make real money, that have been afforded you know vastly more capital than they should have at vastly higher valuations than they should have. Now, a number of those businesses were never really businesses in the first place. Uh, and by businesses, I mean, you know, it's a quaint notion, but they actually can have the prospect of making money. Typically, a, an enterprise or asset only has money insofar as there's a present value of the cash flows ultimately created by that uh, enterprise or asset. And so there's a lot of those businesses that need to, will kind of not exist. Uh, because they shouldn't have existed in the first place. However, an enormous number of those businesses voluntarily sacrifice profitability in the form of over-expenditures on HR and marketing, et cetera, in order to juice their revenue growth, in order to incentivize prospective equity investors to invest in ever-growing pre- and post-money valuations. Right, And so you can die by the sword and you could also live by the sword, meaning that you can start to do the right things, cut the cost, cut the growth, create cash flow, and be worthy of uh, an evaluation that is focused on the intrinsic ability of an enterprise or asset to create real cash flow. There are situations now um, where enterprises making that turn uh, toward profitability, not quite there yet, uh, are faced with incredibly dilutive equity financing options. Um, that are highly unappealing to their current stakeholders. There are situations where, for instance, at a terribly low loan to values, and I'm talking about you know sub 10 or 20%, they might be quite willing to compensate lenders to the tune of you know 20s or more, because that still might be accretive relative to an 85% down round on on, a, on an equity round, as an example. So I think it is a 
Uh, it's a very interesting area. Um, we, we have our first person uh, in Silicon Valley for arena um, focused right uh, in the belly of the beast, so to speak. She was a, a venture capitalist and an engineer at Apple herself. Oh, and wow. we are pursuing partnerships with a variety of folks who really engage in that ecosystem uh, in order to provide solutions for some of those formerly growing enterprises. Will you be doing venture deals? Will you be investing in early stage companies or private, like private deals? Or I would call it, I would call it growth credit. Again, you can do debt in a growing business, right? And it doesn't. You can invest in a growing business, and it doesn't have to be venture capital. If that growing business has the ability to have real asset value or, or you know, demonstrable cash flows, and so we'll come at the very senior part of the capital structure in really a combination of what's traditionally be called venture lending, direct lending, direct corporate lending, and special situations and distressed debt investing. It's kind of a new animal, right? That's going to be quite prevalent. Um, that will um, help those businesses rationalize their operations, rationalize their capital structures to a lower rate of growth of real and demonstrable cash flows. So we won't step in and be venture capitalists. We will just encounter enterprises that have been overfunded sometimes by venture mm -hmm. capitalists that have real value where we can advance very conservatively against that value and make outsized returns. I'd love to also get some maybe semi predictions from you. Where do you think you know the next six months to year you know, takes us? Do we, do we see a resolution, maybe a peace compromise in, with the war in Ukraine and Russia? Taiwan, China seems to be ramping up rhetoric about you know threatening Taiwan. Where do you see some of the macro things that are guiding the economy kind of shaping up in the next year? And does this lead us into a deeper recession? And how bad could that recession be? Well, I, I, I think more predictable is the likelihood of continued daylight and dollar short monetary policy, uh, which mm -hmm. will mean continued increases in rates uh, at too slow a pace in too small a set of denominations. Uh -huh. I think we will, even with um, significant uh, moves to the right in some of the Western democracies, still have very significant uh, fiscal policy lapses where uh, fiat currencies will, be, will continue to be diminished in value relative to assets and continue to work against the very acts of their respective monetary authorities. So that's really uh, a pretty darn predictable base case. It will be uh, affected by any number of kind of left tail risks, some of which could include uh, escalation in uh, Ukraine, the effects of an energy crisis uh, precipitated by that escalation, or even if it's not escalated, certainly moves that could be made in uh, China with respect to Taiwan, uh, but also including many other left tails, right? So when Trust came in and announced her mini budget, no one thought of you know, the LDI effect on you know, UK corporate pensions. When you have 14 years of nothing but straight up markets, you have a lot of people swimming in the ocean uh, without bathing suits on. And as Buffett says, when the tide goes out, you see who has them on. And I think there are a whole variety of semi-systematic or even idiosyncratic issues, whether it's large scale frauds, various forms of um, programs like LDI that 
you know, were put in place at a time of a decade or more of, you know, incredibly low vol. Lots of kind of surprises out there that could serve to exacerbate climate created by monetary and government authorities. And that uh, could, in fact, create a what is historically referred to as a panic, meaning mm-hmm. a seizing up of markets that precludes kind of active risk pricing. Similar to what we last saw in, uh, between August and, and December of 1998 in the wake of the Russian devaluation and the kind of crisis in the Thai bot. And where, where do you kind of see, you know, the recession kind of taking us? Do you think it's going to get, do you think it's, we, you know, it's going to be a mild recession or how deep do you think we get into that? I think it will be pretty deep, but more importantly, pretty long. I think there's a perception that we can kind of just have a cathartic event and get through it uh, like 08. Uh, and in 08, you had a very concentrated set of risks owned by a relatively concentrated group of large-scale institutions. Since that time, those institutions are probably doing pretty well because they, the whole-scale overregulation of those institutions did preclude them from doing things that otherwise might have put them in a bad spot today, right? It also precluded them from doing a number of things that would reduce the risk that we find today. So as a result, that risk has been greatly increased in terms of its total size. The degree to which that risk can be intermediated um, by anybody, the Wall Street firms or otherwise, has been reduced very significantly. You have a scenario where a kind of recessionary environment can be prolonged significantly by the just sheer scale of the volume of mispriced assets that need to be kind of dealt with one way or another. Humans being what they are, the incentives will be, let's not take the medicine kind of all at once, let's spread it out. Right. So when when Liz Truss and Quasi in the UK said, okay, let's take the medicine, let's cut the taxes, let's massively cut expenditures, let's force the monetary authorities to move rates up, let's deal with this and let's move forward like Thatcher, you know, let's take the medicine and move on. Everyone was like, that's horrible, right? We want to spread this thing out. You know, we don't want to take all this medicine at once. That human proclivity necessarily means that it's likely that this will be an extended tough situation that will feel a lot more like the, I think, a lot more like the 70s. And so that's not something that many people transacting in business today even experienced as adults. I think it's going to be very difficult for retail investors, especially to navigate uh, this moving forward, let alone professionals that are sophisticated as yourself. Um, it's going to be difficult for like the average person to try to navigate what's happening forward and, and they're with their own investments. What would you say to the, you know, the average person you know, out there that's going to need to navigate this for the next year? Like you said, it might be a long recession, year, two years, um, you know, with, when it comes to their own investments. Well, I think on the left side of the balance sheet, and I've had uh, you know, individuals, friends ask me these things. In terms of things that you can actually really do realistically uh, as a smaller scale real- retail investor, one, you can make sure you're not short a floating rate mortgage um, <laughs> uh, and or delever one if you, if you are. Number two, uh, you can hopefully, if you have excess uh, capital, potentially own on a low levered basis property, right? That has an NOI stream coming off of it. As an example, like uh, smaller scale strip retail or multifamily. 
Um, mm-hmm. On the security side, I think you can look at things like shorter duration uh, investment grade uh, ABS and corporate bond funds. Um, the opportunities there, I think, are actually all things being equal on a relative basis, pretty appealing relative to the risk you're taking. You can also find yourself in places where your ordinary income is taxed less uh, because you're going to have less post-tax income as it is. So thinking about migrating to places where you, the kind of government burden uh, that you bear is, is minimized is going to be a good thing as well. Yeah, it is scary to see what's happening with mortgage rates. I've, I've had a few friends talk to me recently about how they've had to cut back their spending because their mortgage all of a sudden became 1000 or 2000 or $3,000 more expensive per month because yep. the interest was more than their uh, primary payment. Um, and now they had to cut back on how much they go out and how much they spend. And if that's happening to a few people who are single and make good money, what happens when that's going to happen to millions of people across America and their mortgage, their variable mortgage rates rise? Mm. Mm. Do you see anything like that? You know, if that starts cascading across the economy all over America, are there any worries that you have regarding you know people's interest rates all of a sudden becoming much more expensive? Well, they've already doubled and they're going to increase from here. And frankly, even availability uh, of, a, of a new mortgage is going to be much more limited than it was before. That will continue. There will be larger scale foreclosure activity. That activity will be uh, swifter than it has been in a while because we're in a post-COVID environment. So the court systems are freeing up. And so the uh, kind of top-down restrictions that otherwise could have limited some of the kind of foreclosure activity have been lifted. And so that's going to be a very serious thing. It's going to affect uh, a lot of folks who who basically chose to um, risk floating because they were lulled into thinking, well, geez, this is how it is now. So I don't really have to worry. And so they looked at teaser rates and other structures where in order to, to take a fixed mortgage, they would have had to pay more then, right? On the, you know, but effectively they were taking the risk that you know, things wouldn't float upward and now they have, and now they're going to continue. Before I let you go, love to hear, are there any good books you're currently reading? Uh, anything that notable you'd like to share? Uh, well, I think for this purpose, uh, a, a very good one uh, that I, I recently uh, read was called Devil Take the Hindmost, excuse me, Devil mm-hmm. Take the Hindmost uh, by Edward Chancellor. Um, which is a history of kind of asset bubbles and speculative activity. And, uh, you know, there are a number of those types of books and, you know, I always find it interesting. And what they always tell you is things never change. Uh, If you look at at the Tulip bubble or the South Sea bubble uh, or the things that happen with railroads or the telegraph or the utilities, it's all the same thing keeps happening over and over and over again. It'll never stop happening. There will always be kind of cyclical speculative activity and it always ends the same way. <laughs> so we, we keep repeating the same mistakes. History keeps repeating itself and it's probably going to end the same way. Pretty much. <laughs> love that. Well, thanks for coming on. I love that. I pre- really appreciate the time. I love having your insights and I hope we can have you back on soon. You're welcome. Thanks for having me.